Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, Senior Reporter and Kids Editor Nico Franks, and Drama Quarterly Editor Michael Pickard, as we consider MIPCOM, Europe's biggest TV market which gets underway today. Not in its usual glamorous setting of Cannes, but for the first time in its 35-year history online. The industry was already asking questions of MIP TV in April, an event which in recent years has seen growing competition from the likes of the UK screenings, Series Mania and others. As the novel coronavirus spread in February, organiser Reed Midem was hopeful it would still be able to host the annual confab on the French Riviera. But as the situation turned into a global pandemic and governments began to restrict travel and gatherings, MIP TV became untenable. As France and others seemed to get to grips with COVID-19 over the summer, hopes remained high that Reed Midem's more significant MIP conference would be able to go ahead in October, albeit a scaled-down version with social distancing, temperature checks, and an absence of the usual cocktails and parties that characterise the Cannes experience. But as the number of COVID-19 cases once again crept up, a growing number of big-name distributors pulled out, and last month, Reed was forced to cancel plans for a physical event and go online only for the first time in its 35-year history. It was a huge blow not only for the company, whose president and chief executive Paul Zilk stepped down shortly afterwards, but also for Cannes, whose palette a festival conference centre and surrounding hotels, bars and restaurants rely on the tourists and tens of thousands of executives that flock to the city each year. It's a blow too to the international TV buyers and sellers who would usually attend and rely on MIP as an opportunity to meet one another, find out about the latest shows and trends within the industry. The C21 team would normally be on the ground as well, crisscrossing the Palais and pacing La Croisette, doing back-to-back interviews and bringing you all the news from the event. But here we are at home instead, chatting on Zoom like millions of others around the world right now. I'm joined by C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, Senior Reporter and Kids Editor Nico Franks, and Drama Quarterly Editor Michael Picard. Ed, let's start with you. You've been a regular at MIP for a number of years now. The event's been through other things, floods, an Icelandic volcano that saw execs stranded or flee by whatever means necessary, but nothing quite like this. I've given some perspective in my intro, but how significant is MIP in terms of the annual programme supply cycle, and what impact do you anticipate from its shift online? Well, let, let me start by saying that the MIPCOM is central to the distribution business. If you talk to any distributor about the events in the calendar and the increasing number of events in the calendar, and you say to them which ones are must attend, then MIPCOM is top of the top of the league across the board. Um, it's changing. The industry is changing by any means. It's not hurting as much as broadcasting is hurted over the last six months due to lockdown. You know, broadcast has been very hurt by the lack of live sport, lack of uh, you know production supply lines freezing up. Uh, and the decline in advertising, they're hurting an awful lot. Producers are hurting an awful lot as well because of, you know they can't produce. But distributors aren't hurting anywhere near as much as that. In fact, they've had quite a good summer. You know, the, one of the reactions um, to the pandemic by broadcasters and platforms is uh, to reach for shows that are already in the can. So distributors have been uh, uh, making hay during that situation. Um, and, and if you look at the, the entire business, it's booming. There's Think of the number of um, distribution companies that launched during 
lockdown. If it was if it was that bad for distribution, they wouldn't be launching. And there's lots of trends that have emerged this year, which show that distribution is in in rude health. Not just the pandemic, which drove so many platforms and networks to reach for shows that were already in the can, but also uh, the growth in SVOD around the world this summer. You know, this summer saw the launch of the accelerated growth of SVOD around the world and other forms of uh, OTT. Uh, and a corollary of that was that the studios behind those platforms withdrew their product from the market to drive their own uh, SVOD and direct-to-consumer ambitions. Uh, and if you're a distributor outside of the US studio system, that's that's a boon because that means some of your biggest competition, those US Hollywood shows, are no longer in the market. So the, the broadcasters around the world which previously had those shows are now looking for uh, independently supplied programming. And that's that's a, a boost for your business if you're an independent distributor. Obviously, there's other issues that have, have led to uh, a, a growth in licensed programming and networks that spent the last 10 years trumpeting how much they were moving out of acquisitions and into original production and local commissions and so forth are now having to sort of reverse the strategy and get back into the acquisitions game. And if you look at what happened to the US networks this uh, this fall season, they, they didn't have a pilot season, they didn't have an upfront, they didn't have an LA screening. So all those things that are um, going to drive show, original shows to their fall season were on hold. So what did they do? They, last month, they launched a sort of a band-aid schedule for the fall season and they, they moved shows from the summer into the fall season. They picked up shows from SVOD siblings within the same studio. So they became a sort of rerun channel for their SVOD siblings in many cases. They picked up shows from other US uh, networks to, to rerun on, on the national network primetime. And more interestingly for the, the MIPCOM community, they picked up shows from the international market. Networks like NBC, the CW, they reached up into Canada, they reached into the UK and just picked up shows that were already in the can and put them in network primetime. And it wasn't just Canada and the UK, they picked up Devils, which is a, an Italian co-production with other partners in Europe. Um, so that, that that trend is providing a, a, a boost to the international distribution business. The fact that Mipcom's uh, struggling this year, I don't think is going to uh, have an awful lot of impact in the long term. It's obviously having a short-term impact now and distributors are having to uh, get to grips with pitching over Zoom and doing presentations over Zoom and different ways to, to reach buyers. But, you know, you talk to any distributor and they're saying that they miss that face-to-face. They miss that random encounters with buyers that you don't know that, that want to buy your shows. So I think once we get through this and, and Read Medium works out a way to make it work, then Mipcom is, is not going to go any away next year. So as well as COVID, it's obviously been a tumultuous period for the world in, in many other ways. How are we seeing those trends coming through in programming? Well, one of the other things that happened this year is, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, obviously, that's had repercussions around the world in terms of protests and the rise in, in uh, anti-racist legislation and, and demonstrations. But in terms of the effect on our particular corner of the, of the TV business, it's had a, a massive impact on the US demand for cop shows. It's worth looking at the ubiquity and volume of cop shows that were being produced before BLM. You know, up to a quarter of all new shows entering pilot season were cop-centric or crime-centric. And if you look back over the years, the most popular shows in terms of domestic US market and the international market are cop franchises, NCIS, CSI, Law and & Order. And last year, the, uh, some Nielsen data shows that the 100 most popular telecasts in the US last year, 23 of them were episodes 
shows of NCIS. So it's, it's hard to over-egg the, the, the importance of cop shows to the US TV business. But Black Lives Matter changed that overnight. You know, the audience perception of cops, police moved from heroes to villains overnight. And it wasn't just in the drama space, but in the unscripted space. So we saw unscripted shows like Cops being cancelled by Paramount Network, Live PD, which is Amy Network's top-rated show at the time, got cancelled. Cop shows are now seen as part of the problem for, you know, everything from glorifying violence, justifying rule-breaking by cops, normalising brutality and ignoring systemic racism. So the US networks are now rethinking their approach to cop shows, and that's going to have massive repercussions for the international market because there'll be fewer cop shows developed in the US, piloted, produced and internationally distributed. And the ones that do make it through are going to be much more US-focused and dealing with US social issues. So those shows might not be as universal in their appeal as, as the previous sort of cop procedurals. Now, those cookie-cutter cop procedurals are actually very popular around the world, and there's a massive high demand for those. And we've already seen European networks getting together, like TF1 and RTL, to produce US-style cop shows that they weren't getting from Hollywood. And I think that trend is going to only continue. And so there's a real opportunity for producers and distributors outside the US studio system to get a piece of the market that was previously dominated by the US uh, studios. You know, there could be more opportunities for European cop shows, European co-productions with Latin in America in the same way as Narcos kind of thing or European co-productions with Asian producers to make uh, cop shows to fill this this vacuum that is going to be in the international market. So a good time in many ways, if there can be such a thing in the circumstances for European distributors. Over the summer, obviously, as well, we've seen the creation of Europe's biggest international TV production and distribution company now with Banerjee's completion of its $2 billion acquisition of Endemol Shine Group. We would have expected at MIPCOM the would have been the, the the sort of crowning moment for for that deal and uh, a great celebration of of that transaction which has been in the works for a number of years now that's obviously not happening there's been all sorts of movements of, of executives at, at, at either companies as the two of them come together but what are the ramifications for the rest of the industry for that deal well it's it can't really be underestimated the impact on particularly the unscripted business you know Banerjee and Endemol Shine Group getting together has created this unscripted giant which is dominating the uh, the entire business not just for unscripted, but mainly. Um, when you think of the unscripted format business, Oliver and Obam estimate that by 2025, it's going to be $32.5 billion spent on unscripted television, unscripted formatted TV. So it's a big a big game to, 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 be, to dominate. The thing that interests me about that merger is about 10 years ago, the industry, particularly the unscripted industry, went through a a big mergers and acquisitions trend and loads of companies bought each other and there was a real impact on the development process. New ideas weren't coming out because the companies that had merged spent a lot of time looking inward at their own back catalogue, dealing with HR issues and a lot of people that were creative left the companies. To, you know, There was these refugees from the M&A process that went on to create their own new companies. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if that process repeats itself in this new era of consolidation because what happened back then, 10 years ago, is not only did the the giants lose a bit of market share to the smaller companies that weren't so focused on uh, completing these M&As and dealing with all the uh, the mass exodus and the HR issues. But it allowed a lot of um, distributors and format companies from around the world to get a slice of the market. And that's when Israel, Korea, all these other co- countries that started getting a slice of the market uh, did so because the, the big companies that had dominated the business were suddenly looking at back catalogues. And I remember going to MIPCOM years ago when 20-year-old formats were being relaunched because of this m process and this renewed focus on the catalogues that have been expensively acquired. Is that going to happen this time around? We're 
already seeing a sort of a rebirth and a renewed interest in formats from Asia, from other parts of the world because of things like Mars Singer. So it's going to be a really interesting time for this new group to try and maintain its, its market share because there's going to be a whole load of ramifications for this merger, this completion of this merger that could allow other companies and countries to get a slice of the international format business. So yeah, interesting times ahead for Unscripted. You mentioned the Mars Singer career there. It's country of honour this year at MIPCOM. Normally there would be all sorts of grand ceremonies to, to celebrate that fact. Slightly different affair, but just talk us through the importance of Korea now in terms of the international TV landscape. Well, it's interesting, uh, interesting time to be the country of honour because, I mean, there's no denying the impact of South Korean programmes and formats. What they call the Korean wave has been sort of washing around the world for, you know, 10 or 15 years now in terms of animation and, and drama and you know, relatively recently formats. There's only sort of eight years or 10 years that they've been in that format business, but they've certainly made their presence felt. If you think of The Good Doctor, uh, that drama that got uh, remade in, in America and travelled around the world, The Masked Singer, I Can See Your Voice, the list of uh, Korean IP that is making an impact is a very long one. But um, it's interesting to see the changes that are happening in the kinds of companies that are exporting Korean IP. I don't know, five years ago, it was all about the terrestrial channels and the distribution arms of the terrestrial channels that were, were selling these shows around the world. And, and so there was a quite an ongoing sort of upward trend for Korean exports and Korean format exports as well. And then that the Chinese ban on anything to do with Korean content came into place in 16. So for 2017, that, those export figures plummeted and that impacted the terrestrial broadcasters the most because they were the ones that were dominating the game up until then. And then as the Korean export industry lifted itself up from the Chinese content ban and started finding new new markets to sell into. It was the sort of, not the terrestrial channels, but the cable channels like CJ, JTBC and others that started dominating the export market. And they're now leading the charge when it comes to exporting Korean content. I mean, obviously it might change because uh, Mars Singer is, is from a terrestrial channel. So the, the figures for, for 2019 and 2020 will be very much skewed towards the terrestrials again. But it's interesting that the Chinese ban allowed those cable companies to get a big slice of the market. And it's not just the cable companies, the independent Korean producers have got a bit more clout around the negotiating table that they can get rights to their content whether it's international rights or format rights or underlying copyright or what have you and they're now doing international deals with uh, networks around the world so the the sort of the balance of exports is moving away from the terrestrial channels and very much towards the, the cable channels and the independent producers and it echoes a trend that happened in in the uk sort of 20 years ago where you know uh, the independent producers started retaining their their rights uh, and started exporting them and it drove this massive spike in uk exports and particularly uk format exports so looking ahead to korean exports over the next few years it'll be really interesting to see if that gets replicated and the independent korean producers start dominating the export of Korean content. So you can read plenty more about the uh, latest trends coming out of Korea in an article in the C21 International magazines, the print editions of which we would also normally be distributing down at MIPCOM in CAM, but you can find them on our website uh, by visiting c21media.net. There's plenty more there also about the, the Banerjee-Endemol merger and lots, lots more. Nico, you've overseen that magazine and um, Monday at MIPCOM for you would normally mean MIP Junior was already done and dusted and having happened over the weekend you'd be celebrating a string of scoops no doubt from that event moving on to your next one as the main market got underway things are of course rather different this year how's the kids TV industry adapting to the absence of events well it depends who you ask really uh, if you're one of the established kids distributors take a company like E1 which has IP like Peppa Pig PJ Masks and now Power 
Rangers and My Little Pony in its library following its takeover by Hasbro. They're not really expecting to be affected that much by the absence of MIP Junior and MIPCOM as a physical event because they have such established relationships with buyers. You know, they were telling me recently that they've sold out pretty much of their catalogue of finished programming, such as the demand for kids' shows over the spring and summer. And they can still, you know, set up those Zoom calls. And obviously it's different, but they still have that rapport with the buyer. So they can still kind of muddle through and and find a way to keep doing deals and keeping that business coming through. But if you're a smaller distributor and a smaller producer, and you do get a lot of those at MIP Junior and MIPCOM, people who are you know selling their first show, they have their idea for a kid's show, and they're wanting to put it in front of buyers and, and hope that you know it could be the next Peppa Pig, for example. They're going to struggle because ordinarily they would approach a buyer at one of the networking events at MIPCOM or MIP Junior. But obviously, those aren't really happening in any sense, in any physical sense this time. So it's a lot harder to build those relationships. And it's not really possible to, to build a relationship over email or Zoom. So there is a bit of a divide there between the established producers and distributors in the kids industry and those new ones that are just coming through. But it has to be said that there is huge demand for kids programming. So the buyers are going to be looking for shows. They know that kids are watching more content than ever. During lockdown, we saw subscriptions to streaming services rocket. Kids looking for or parents really needing the support of streaming services and, and public service broadcasters and the commercial channels to occupy their children and a big demand for educational programming as well given so many children missed out on school time this year so yeah it's a it's a it's a boom time really for the animation industry in particular on that side of the the kids business because that has been able to continue with animators producing from home so there's no letter in the production of animated kids content there are question marks when it comes to live action because of the production freeze and that challenge not only of of a live action production going ahead at the moment, but a live action production involving children, which tends to be the case when it's a a kid show. So it was a genre that was hugely in demand prior to the pandemic. We saw shows like Find Me in Paris, a French-German co-production that also had the involvement of Hulu in the US selling around the world and having budgets, you know, not quite on a par with an adult drama, but not too far away and, and definitely a far cry from the kind of low-budget productions that people may have previously associated with kids' live action. So it all depends on what side of the kids' business you're on, really, in terms of how the impact of a lack of a physical MIPCOM and MIP Junior will be on the on your business. I have heard some kids' execs even talk about the fact that the present situation has, in fact, been a, a benefit to some people, those who would not normally perhaps do so well if it came to, to standing up in front of an audience in, in Cannes and pitching their show, they've been able to put together some quite polished presentations and send them across over LinkedIn, for example. So as you say, I guess it, it is playing to different parts of the business depending on where you're sat. Yeah, in some ways it is a great leveller because everyone is pitching from their living room. You know, They don't have the opportunity to invite them up to a, a glossy suite now, anything like that. It all comes down to the idea now. So if you have a great idea and you approach the buyer in the right way and your materials are up to scratch, you know, there's there's going to be so much more emphasis put on Bible materials now, so much more effort being put into the development of shows. That if you nail that, then you do have a good chance of potentially getting a partner on board. But the 
thing is now you might need many more partners because broadcasters' budgets are strained. And producers I've spoken to and they're featured in C21 Kids uh, magazine have told me that sometimes, you know, their their budgets that they would have had in terms of the commitment from a buyer has gone down by maybe 20%. So they're now having to find maybe one extra buyer to come on board just to put the last part of that jigsaw together on a show. So as mentioned, the weekend would have normally seen MIP Junior taking place. The, the kids' day is now happening on a Wednesday. What's going on on that day? And you know, how, how do you think that whole thing's going to play out? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So Read Medium are dedicating a day to kids. So Wednesday this week, that's headlined by Matthew A. Cherry, who won an Academy Award for Best Short for the animated film Hair Love. And he's going to be participating in a keynote session, a one-on-one conversation. And likely a big subject of that will be the upcoming series he's doing with HBO Max, Young Love, which is based on that short, which is all about the family dynamics of a young black millennial family. So that speaks to a big talking point in the industry at the moment, which is getting more diverse and inclusive stories on screen. The kids industry is no different to the rest of the industry and knowing that it needs to do more. We are seeing buyers now saying that if producers aren't thinking about diversity and on and off screen, then that could lead to a, you know, them not getting a commission. It's becoming ever more important. And that was a big trend that people were saying was coming out of Cartoon Forum, which took place in September and is running online until October the 15th. That a lot more producers are thinking about diversity and inclusion and including characters with more depth from different backgrounds in their stories, which is something that's been needed to see for a long time. And MIP will also be recognizing certain shows in its diversity and inclusion program. They have an awards ceremony that's designed to spotlight certain shows. So representation of LGBTQ+, in scripted and non-scripted, representation of disability, representation of race and ethnicity in different genres, and representation of diversity in kids programming. So lots of examples of really progressive programming to be seen there. Mike, drama, as we all know, you in particular has been a booming part of the business for the past decade. MIPS devoted more and more attention to it, as has Can Series, a festival which sprang up in parallel three years ago and is still going ahead with a physical event this time at the Miramar and Palais de Festival. What can you tell us about what's happening this year and some of the programme highlights? Yeah, well, obviously it's, it's been a very interesting year around the world um, in terms of drama production. We had the majority of shows in production shut down around sort of February, March time if, if they hadn't already wrapped just in time to, to get the last uh, images on, on film. And then the whole summer really has been a test for, for post-production houses to, to set up remote working practices. And those have largely been a huge success from speaking to people who have you know had to go through that process and, and launch shows then over the summer. And, and that remote working has, has largely laid down the blueprint for shows to get back into production towards the end of the summer and, and sort of now, now we're in the autumn. So it's been a, a very interesting learning experience for I think for every aspect of, of the drama business just to, to continue to get um, some sort of pipeline of shows to broadcast through the year um, and we've certainly seen shows that I was getting ready to, to do interviews for and write about earlier in the year have, have obviously been postponed and, and sort of they're still coming through now so I think it's been um, you know quite challenging for the broadcasters and the streamers to just to uh, I guess delay some of their, their bigger shows that they would have had earlier in the year and we're now starting to see those come through and I guess when we come to Can Series and, and MIPCOM and look at the lineup, we're seeing quite a strong lineup of, of shows really that are going to be screened and, and discussed. Can Series originally runs, um, as people probably 
know, alongside MIT TV in the spring, that was decided rather than cancel it entirely, they've postponed it. And as you mentioned, they've still got a physical offering. So if you are in, in the Cairns area and want to, to see something, you can uh, grab a ticket, I'm sure. There's a great lineup of screenings this year in competition. A lot of stuff people will probably know. Atlantic Crossing is the, the World War II period drama starring Sophia Helin and Karl McLaughlin um, about the relationship between a, a Norwegian princess who is evacuated to the US and, and ends up um, having quite a, an influence on the US role in the war that would, would come at that time. We also have the Simon Pegg and Nick Frost comedy drama Truth Seekers, which is uh, about to bow on Amazon. So it's great timing for that. And I think we're all interested to see how those two stars of the big screen and, and you know, we know from the Cornetto trilogy how that show will translate onto the small screen. Um, we also have a couple of Swedish shows in competition, Top Dog and Partisan. So something for Scandi viewers to get their teeth into. And we also have Red Light, which is uh, co-created by Clarice Van Outen, who people will know from Game of Thrones, which looks to be um, a quite an interesting and absorbing um, look at human trafficking, prostitution and exploitation. So um, I'm sure that will uh, intrigue a lot of people. Out of competition, we have a couple of French shows, season four of Call My Agent, which uh, has just gone on to huge acclaim around the world. I think thanks in part to its launch on Netflix. That's, you know, going from strength to strength. The Flame is making its debut. And also a show I'm particularly keen to see, having been on set in Prague for it in August last year, which now seems like a lifetime ago. We have Shadow Play, which is another post-war drama from writer and director Mans Marlins, who people will know from The Bridge and Midnight Sun, starring Taylor Kitsch as a, a US cop who goes to, to Berlin to basically sort the police out there and, and bring to justice an Al Capone figure. That's been an eagerly awaited show on my book, certainly, and I'm sure um, there'll be a lot of interest when that plays in Cannes. There are also going to be remote sessions with a couple of US actors, Jared Harris from Chernobyl, Carl McLaughlin, who will be obviously talking about Atlantic Crossing. Gail Ann Hurd will be there to talk about the ever-expanding Walking Dead franchise. And also Darren Starr, who has just launched Emily in Paris, um, and we'll be talking more about that show. And I'm sure he'll mention uh, some of his other legacy projects, Beverly Hills and, uh, and Sex and the City. Um, and then when it comes to MIPCOM, there's a couple of big keynotes that are worth looking out for. The first one, Tyler Perry, you know, the acclaimed US multi-hyphenate, I think you would call him, writer, actor, producer, director. His output level, I think particularly at the moment, he was one of the first US producers to get back into business um, after the shutdown earlier this year. I mean, he's just prolific and he writes everything and, and directs a lot of his own stuff. And I mean, it's just insane. So um, I've been looking to, to hear from him. So that'll be a great one, I think. And also the British TV fans, Noel Clark. you know, he's still a young guy, but he's again, a writer, producer, director, started in films, is now on TV with, he was in Doctor Who and he was in Bulletproof on Sky. And he's just recently kind of been building up his unstoppable film and TV label. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see what he has to say about both sides of the screen. And I'm sure both of them will obviously be talking about what a, a topical year it's been in terms of dealing with COVID-19 and also the increasing talk about Black Lives Matters and, and diversity on and off screen. I'm sure they'll both have very interesting viewpoints to, to add to that debate. And MIPCOM itself isn't without a huge host of screenings. Just a few ones to pick out, I think, for me, are the All Three Media International series Roadkill. Um, it's another David Hare political thriller, which um, I had the opportunity to watch episode one of. And it's a thoroughly absorbing series with Hugh Laurie starring as a particularly shameless politician who is, uh, uh, as Laurie himself says, is on the, the rise trying to climb up the greasy pole of politics 
while all those enemies he's had are out to get him. So um, that's going to be coming up on um, the BBC, I think, in the next few weeks. But you can see it in Cannes this week. Another standout series, I think, is the Spanish drama Tell Me Who I Am, which Peter Film are distributing. That looks to be a sensational sort of period drama covering multiple locations. So it's, that's definitely one to look out for. And also Ed mentioned that Korea is obviously the country of focus, but I think we should also highlight the role of Russia and emerging Russian drama um, on the global stage. There's actually a discussion, a panel discussion being held about Russian drama going global. And I think one um, screening that's worth looking out for is Sherlock, the Russian Chronicles. Um, I wrote about that on Drama Quality website a few weeks ago, alongside um, a few other Russian dramas. And I think it's really interesting to see how Russian drama is advancing, not just in terms of storytelling, but production values. And there's going to be a you know real play over the next six, 12 months. And, and obviously now in Cannes to get Russian dramas to go mainstream. And I think there's definitely a lot to look out for. And if you like Sherlock, Sherlock the Russian Chronicles is definitely uh, one to look out for as he kind of comes face to face with a, a Jack the Ripper sort of mystery and travels to Russia to uh, to solve the case. So what we're talking about here is obviously a lot of finished programs or programs that are, are near completion and in the post-production phases. But as you mentioned earlier, and as everyone knows, drama has been one of the hardest areas of the business to get up and running again, very much dependent upon what territories people are operating in. Uh, Scandinavia, some countries there have, have kind of continued as normal. But I'm just wondering what kind of trends we're seeing in, in terms of the types of programs perhaps that buyers are now interested in. I was talking with one executive from Sweden who was very much um, moving away from discussions of Nordic noir and talking about blue sky crime. Is there still the sense that audiences and buyers are interested in the same kind of dark drama which which was sort of tending to dominate over the last few years or are people now looking for for lighter content yes i think <laughs> that's, that's probably a, a mixed answer to that question um certainly people are looking for lighter content and you're you're right to highlight you know the scandinavian producers and broadcasters themselves are probably tiring somewhat of the nordic noir label and is this next show the next nordic noir probably not if if they have anything to do with it just because uh, that obviously represents a very small part of their output in terms of you know the dark brooding crime dramas you know that we're we've become used to seeing i guess because they have been so popular but certainly i think they would like to certainly move away from from that tag and um, we're seeing a lot of good stuff still coming out from the region i mean one i would highlight is partisan which is a, a swedish drama that i wrote about recently for drama quarterly starring in and co-created by fairs fairs who has become a bit of a, a hollywood name in recent years and, and also starred in, in chernobyl which won so many uh, bafta awards earlier this year that's a kind of you know more of a mystery drama about a, a man who goes to work on a, a mysterious commune and slowly starts to unearth um, some mysterious secrets so that's uh, certainly one to look out for crime is still very popular i think but certainly we're seeing a move towards the true crime drama a genre that has obviously been such a, a hit already in drama but also in in factual that people be will be aware of two shows to look out for I think one is Dark Woods which comes from uh, Bavaria fiction in Germany and that's inspired by a real life case of a missing woman and her brother he was a police officer his 30 year search for, for answers into, into what happened to her and also The Investigation which is a Danish series from Fremantle that um, looks at the police case behind the murder of Kim Wall the Swedish journalist um, not too long ago actually so that I'm sure that one will be very much in the mind of people 
people as they maybe screen or, or watch it. It's airing on TV2 in Denmark um, at the moment. So it's certainly in that case, I think we're seeing a lot of mystery stuff at the moment, but crime is obviously never too far from people's minds. Maybe just don't call it the next Nordic noir as uh, I think we're trying to uh, widen the genre slightly from that small, but still obviously very popular part of the, that world. To what extent do you feel, having spoken to so many producers over the last six months, you know, what extent do you feel the industry is getting back up to some sort of form of regular production? And, and, and what are the fears moving forwards as we head into the, uh, the winter season and, and, you know, the virus is obviously on the rise again? I mean, as you, as you said earlier, some countries, I guess, particularly some Scandinavian productions, never actually stopped and, and managed to find a way to, to keep shooting while, you know, the COVID virus was rising and, and all around us. That seems to have calmed down, but obviously it's now on the rise again. And I think people were particularly concerned that, you know, now we're back in some sort of production cycle that things will have to shut down again. And obviously no one wants to do that. I think over the summer, obviously a lot of issues have been sorted out, namely um, health and safety protocols, blueprints have been sort of shared around the world in terms of um, industry standard protocols, generally just adding a layer of health and safety to what already would have been a complicated production Bible. Obviously, hand sanitizers, social distancing, keeping the number of crew on set um, to a minimum as possible. It's also interesting to see that a lot of creatives are obviously reluctant to write about COVID in their shows, um, set it in some sort of COVID world. But then obviously, on the flip side of that, they have to ensure that the show they're writing is, is filmable in the current circumstances. So, you know, speaking to Christian Ditter, who's the showrunner of German Netflix series Biohackers, um, I spoke to him just as he was about to go into shooting season two for that. And, and he was talking about not changing the show, but perhaps making it more intimate in the sense that there's fewer big character scenes. Um, the show season one was set at a university. And so he won't have those big lecture hall scenes this year with hundreds of students listening to uh, someone speaking at the front. Those have all been wiped out. Obviously, there's going to be fewer romantic scenes, but uh, Sherry Elwood, who's the showrunner of a Canadian series, Feudal, which is from Entertainment One, she had a quite an interesting way of creating a bubble around her show because she set it on a, on the coast in Nova Scotia. It's based in a, a summer resort. So she's basically got the whole cast and crew, not isolated as such, but they're just keeping to themselves on set at this beautiful coastal resort where they've you know built the set and uh, just created a bit of a bubble for themselves. So that's another way of doing it. It's going to be very interesting. Um, you know, the producers of, of Wakefield, um, an Australian show that comes from BBC Studios, they had all sorts of issues in terms of quarantining because the star of the show comes from Britain. So he had a, a two-week quarantine before he could get back to shooting. But more difficult were the internal border restrictions in Australia between states that they had to get visas for and then they were revoked and then they were brought back again. So they had a bit of shuffling to do. So it's really um, just about getting, I guess, the pieces in the right place. And and once everyone's on set, then obviously um, you can get, get down to business. I think, you know, the downside obviously is that things are taking more time. You have to clean sets and, and props and things. And that adds to the day and, and takes away from the shooting time that you would have to complete the day. But um, I think from what I hear at the moment, shows that are finding a way. I don't think we're back up to as many shows in production as there would have been, you know, had none of this happened, um, which is inevitable and, and shows are slowly finding their feet as they sort of still gather insurance money or, or find financing to just get off the ground. But certainly we're finding our way and, and shows are now filming. So it's a case of getting those shows finished that didn't quite make it in March. And then hopefully we'll get those new productions up and running soon. And, and you know, I think for broadcasters, they're obviously hoping that we 
we won't see a, a huge gap in their broadcast schedules. Obviously, shows have had to be delayed and, and pushed back just to smooth out their broadcast schedule and avoid any holes over the summer. But now they'll be looking to, to get things back up and running and, and continue that. So as viewers, we don't sort of miss out on those big drama launches. You know, every couple of weeks, really, we were seeing on, on the linear schedules, new dramas launching every couple of weeks. And obviously the streamers are doing it once or twice a week. So um, I think they're all confident at the moment that we won't see any big gaps. But obviously that all depends on whether we see another spike and, and productions are forced to close. Fingers crossed that won't happen. And we'll look forward to lots of great drama coming up. You know, with one eye looking at MIP TV, if, if that happens, then we'll see really what the impact is then because a lot of the shows being screened now at Can, in Cannes at MIPCOM and Cannes series will be shows that are finished or, or very near to finish when all this happens. So well, I guess we'll probably see uh, on an international level anyway, the big knock-on effect next spring when, when MIP TV reveals what it's, it will be showing. But hopefully, um, you know, we'll still be treated to the, the great drama that we've become used to over the last decade. Okay, Mike. Well, thanks very much. Um, obviously, we'll hope that uh, MIP TV will be happening again April next year. For the meantime, MIPCOM is online this week. Thanks also to, to Nico and to Ed. That's all for this episode. But stay tuned to C21 for all the latest news coming out of this year's virtual market, plus across the international TV industry. Dip into our C21 screenings portal, of course, to view thousands of shows available from distributors all around the world and catch up on previous episodes of the C21 podcast. It's like MIPCOM every day at c21media.net, only without the rosé and canapes, but who knows, maybe we'll be moving into home delivery next. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>